This is Dan Platt. Well, that's in my intro already, isn't it? This is What's Left in Albany. This program covers the built environment, politics, and people of Albany, as well as the surrounding Tri-City area and region. It features discussions uh, about community projects, organizations, and, uh, and what people are doing, as well as local news and issues in an effort to get a full picture of what's going on. I'm Dan Platt, your friendly neighborhood eco-socialist, opposing our neoliberal present and potential fascist futures, while promoting the build-out of a commons economy and delegated democracy, or direct democracy, whatever, floats your boat, waging a clandestine insurgency against confusion and ignorance as we cannot hope to change our conditions until we understand them. Whatever the outrages or joys we have for the city, we are going to find whatever is left. And yes, that is a double meaning. Wrapping up this program overall, I'm going to, I'm just going to capstone two previous episodes about the South End Grocery and the saga of Trayvon Jackson, though of course I didn't cover all of it, though it was mostly just the coverage of him by Steve Hughes of the Times Union and my content, and then I commented on it, and mostly um, have come to some conclusions about nonprofits that I'm going to make new points after synthesizing some other material um, that I didn't say on air. Uh, it's a conclusion that nonprofits, though you're not considered the private sector because they're nonprofit, they're not market based, but they are in fact operating in the market. They are in fact private sector. They are corporations. They have a corporate structure, they have boards, they have directors. They're just happen to be corporations that are even at times more exploitative because they don't pay workers. They have lots of volunteers. They exist on volunteers, volunteer service organizations in general. I was doing a little research, whatever I could muster based on material um, from a quick search. And, but again, there wasn't that many options of information there. It's, um, when I typed in a volunteerism into YouTube, it gave me documentaries from an alien, uh, like an alien cult kook, where volunteers refer to alien spirits that come down in the people's bodies. Anyway, the rest was just TED Talks about how volunteerism is great, but it's actually on decline as well. According to AmeriCorps, 50, it's 50% down, and it was down another 7% over 2020. 
Now, this is because people of my generation and younger, 40 and younger, we are not volunteering as much with these standard service organizations because for us, it's not like we want to do, we don't want to do charity. We want solidarity. We want to do mutual aid where we help people and they help us. And so it's not about us giving back after we've exploited and raped the earth or been a landlord and collected rents uh, for most of our lives and had midlife crisis and all that rigmarole. No, we, we want to start on a fresh path or do things better. And this is our version of that, where we do mutual aid and we care less about giving back after a, a lifetime of, of just earning paychecks. No, we want it, we really want a world where we don't need to earn the paychecks. I watched the State of the State today of Governor Hochul. And, you know, there, there's sometimes the narrative there is, you know, we want to help people pay their bills as if that was life's meaning. I mean, yes, there's the other meanings of happiness and security and all that. And the means of that, which is security via police state and happiness via uh, mental health services and other means of cleaning up the mess that our system creates. And we can't really do anything about root causes. Those are not mentioned or tackled at all. It's always about papering that over, as that's the mission that government has given itself when it's in the hands of capitalist parties, like the Democrats or the Republicans. Anyway, I've digressed, but my mind is bouncing between all these different ideas. The then I don't think nonprofits are the answer, that they've been the status quo for my lifetime, 30 years at least. And, and yes, they were, they were a big tool of progressing things after the shocks of the 70s. It, it's now been 40 years, 50 years, and it, time to move on with new types of projects, particularly co-ops and community orgs that are membership-based. At least that's what I'm going to be working on in my next five to 10 years. As the last five years with this station as my project, being a part of the station was more hobbyist as I tried, as I focused on my personal life, actually getting a full-time job that pays somewhat okay, I can save up for property buying or doing it with others in particular is my goal. But the capstone of Trayvon Jackson and the Albany, sorry, the South, South End Grocery is, well, on Christmas, he, well, he's accused. I'm going to use the reporting as it's nothing is for sure until the courts are, you know, make a determination. And of course, they're always right, aren't they? Uh, but as, as well as they could be, we have to put some amount of trust in some kind of institution or else it really is just, I'm just going to, I'm going to stab whoever's in my way. But in this case, uh, it's, it's literal. Trayson, Trayvon Jackson accused of burglary and stabbing, stabbing, and he is la uh, labeled Albany businessman. So he was a nonprofit director and manager of a community enterprise, right, doing all of that community stuff, but he's still a businessman. And yes, um, in Americana, business people are community leaders. I think that's petty bourgeois bunk. Yes, they're leaders in the community, meaning they own it, or they, they have social power, and that's through unequal means, and it's unequitable. And it all seems okay as long as everybody's income is sort of similar, there's enough middle class people, there's, there's not so much stratification, but obviously our, our economy has developed into this churn of 
of haves and have-nots or barely making it. Those are kind of making it, but on the on the wire, hard to, you know, struggling to pay their bills. And it seems like the Democrats will spend so money to solve social problems, but then the next year will be like, oh, we have to make the hard choices and cut back because now the billionaires, you know, had a boo-boo. So Trayvon Jackson, founder of the Shuttered South and Grocery, and this is written also by Steve Hughes, but also a Patrick Team. One-time leader of the defunct African-American Cultural Center of the Capital Region and a prominent voice in the area's business, political, and civil rights communities, that's more than what is usually given, was charged Monday with burglary after confrontation at another man's home on Bassett Street. This is according to court records. And this is also, uh, the source here is the police. You can choose or not to believe them. But the police affidavit filed at the county court alleges that Jackson stabbed a man at the home of Bat. At a home on Bassett Street and attempted to steal several electronic devices around 10.30 a.m. on Christmas Day in the morning. So he was charged with first degree burglary, larceny, criminal possession of a weapon. The document says Jackson stabbed the man multiple times with a screwdriver, causing minor injuries to the back of the man's head, which caused substantial pain and difficulty hearing out of his left ear. That's what happens when brain damage occurs. A detective wrote that Jackson had been attempting to take... Items like a Switch, PlayStation 4, not very expensive these days, two laptops and a tablet uh, when a man confronted Jackson in his home with a bag full of items. Like, what is he, the Grinch? So the items are worth roughly $850, according to the document, probably an estimate. Jackson does plead not guilty. Jackson has been arraigned and released under supervision and pro of probation. I guess we can thank bail reform for that. I'm okay with it. I'm for bank bail reform. Bail is sucks. The Albany County DA's office has sought fifty grand in bail. City court clerk, blah blah. Document lists Jackson's address as one hundred six South Pearl Street. Kind of ironic. The same address as the South End grocery store that collapsed earlier this year amid enormous financial strain and acrimony between Jackson and his financial backers. That's kind of odd. This is a police document, I guess. Is he has no other address. Is he can't be homeless. Homeless, you know, homeful, uh, currently unhoused. Jackson did not return a call Tuesday morning, although, of course, I do not. I'm totally ignorant. I, I, I say in my intro, I'm trying to lift the veil of in ignorance. So this is both kind of schadenfreude on my part, though, but I'm also deeply sad as well, you know, that it comes to this for anybody, the desperation, acts of violence, and what have you. Uh, Jackson led an effort to create business and cultural renaissance at the corner of Madison Avenue and South Pearl Street. Todd plans to convert the African-American Cultural Center into a vibrant place to celebrate the city's black community. Uh-huh. Kind of a lesson in don't depend on one person. Don't make it about one person. Uh, if it is about community, then it really should be a crowd of people involved. And uh, as kind of when, um, when I had the interview with Eva Bass and Karen McLaughlin in here, you know, they, they just spoke... Uh, a number of times about you know community this but it's so hard to talk to people it's so hard to get people to care and be involved with each other and i think the culture is still more charity minded what we're doing for people why aren't you grateful uh where are we getting resources let's ask the middle class of uptown you know and, and they where they just see dangerous poor people so you know okay so it's just a retreat of what i've been going on about yeah, so it's just a repeat of that. That's just the capstone. It's that. Uh, related to blight and urban issues, this is a piece from 2019 by when Amanda Freeze was still 
the Albany Bee reporter. I save this in my kind of local policies folder because it has to do with code enforcement and general community peace and justice issues. Like how do we actually solve interpersonal conflicts on our streets, especially in the hood where, or, or just where everyone is of different social or not, even, if not economic, but social classes. And, and I think I, I, I say this because there is kind of other pieces that are missing and not being talked about and discussed because when it comes to urbanism and becomes in my mind, it, there's, there's all these different factors that contribute to these social issues that explode into crime or antisocial behavior, right? Antisocial behavior is a pretty abstract way of kind of putting a lot of things that people are anxious about, especially around other people and why there's, a, if there is a lack of solidarity there, there's, um, those people don't care about society. I care about society. And I've gone into this on the stream that I do on the weekend with um, Bread Theory. Check that out. That there are different ways people consider others to be a adult in society, you know, adult behavior and sociable. You know, my standard is like, you know, a good amount of education. That's usually a good uh, standard finishing high school, some or graduating college again that requires more resources you know requires resources just to get through middle and high school really as well 80 percent get through it but in, in albany the graduation rate has fluctuated i think it's back up to 70 i could be wrong but this is about uh the first street melee highlights the need to tackle nuisance properties so it was a kind of a big deal night 2019 with pre-pandemic so this is this was what was on people's minds before uh pandemic you know mass death and masking and all that stuff was kind of the fights that would break out around house parties on in residential areas or you know there was a there was a big fight first street melee it was called and i forget if this was had to do with the police beating up some uh some teens or 20 year olds 20 somethings maybe they were older but they were from a house party it was a it was a nuisance property as this is called and the nuisance property uh inhabited by nuisance people uh, throwaway people that is the kind of the framing of the reactionary mind i see something else i see people who are oppressed downtrodden under invested in we invest in our schools a certain extent but they have to go to them or that it has to be valuable to them it has to mean something or you need a certain level of resources if you're going to do well in school uh in our school system so it's it's not really going to be as universalizing as we want it to be because there's still some barriers that require a base level of economic floor that doesn't exist. Or if you do have that economic floor via Section A, food stamps, it's degrading, it's dehumanizing because it's only for you, the failures of society. If we universalize this stuff so everybody has that floor and thus... Nobody is truly stressed out about, can I pay my bills? What kind of career do I need? What kind of jobs do I have to take? So this isn't, uh, let's see. So exterior of the home of 523 First Street, where police responded to the call, which led to the alleged assault of two black men by Albany police officers on Tuesday, April 2nd, 2019. The incident took place on March 16th after police responded to a call for loud music. So it was kind of a flashpoint of race relations here in Albany. This is after Dante Ivey getting killed by Taser 
and this was you know an instance of police brutality because they were pepper spraying they were beaten up being they were kind of coming up to someone's door and basically they did kind of a forced entry of sorts i think there there's and it was captured on video you know you had the video now um leading up to you know, blm in 2020 we have all these instances that occur and they're in good quality video revving engines in the middle of the night Loud music blasting from cars, homes, and garages. Subtle threats to take real care should you complain. West Hill resident Tim Dotry has regularly called police on nuisance properties surrounding his home and others he owns along Elk and Sherman Streets, but problems haven't ended. You know, policing doesn't really solve social issues, do they? It's really the concern about the retaliation, and eventually you only take so much of that threat until it's not worth it, he said. Noting police and other officials often say, this is the kind of neighborhood and there is nothing you can do except move away or sell your house. So there's also kind of a shrug from city authorities. Like, oh, there's these social issues. There's nothing we can do about it. You are left to the whims of the market here. Now on the poor, you know, on the black people's side, there, there's kind of a paradox here where, uh, or a contradiction where in order to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and be economically viable people, they have to act right. They have to have certain values. You know, middle class values? Well, they're not middle class. They've never been treated like that. And being in being black skin, especially darker black skin, they're assumed to be a danger or a bad customer. There's these biases, implicit biases. That's what that's called, implicit bias. And, uh, and you can give cops implicit bias training, but it's not like everyone else in town gets implicit bias. But in this case... It is judging people based on their behavior. It, they are antisocial. And of course, why wouldn't they be? Society tells them to go eat dirt and that they're worthless and they're not going to hire them. They're always at the bottom of every list, so on and so forth. Or if not them, it said that to their parents and their parents' parents. And that's why they're in the situation they're in. But if they, even their situation is kind of okay, they'll get a, let's say they're, they're jerks, they're, they're antisocial. How do we, you know, what do we do about that? Well, I don't think locking them up in jail is going to make them better people. It kind of can now that you can take classes there. You can get the education you never could afford it and go to Hudson Valley. Little, little point there. Disrespectful neighbors across the city plague certain residential sections of Albany, also known as the hood, ghettos, etc. But the need to crack down on the nuisance properties has only recently become a focus for city officials after a basic noise complaint turned into an alleged beating of three men by Albany police. The city has several mechanisms for dealing with nuisance properties, but there are a few examples where Albany has used them in recent years. Officials blame changeover in various departments as well as legal murkiness in the processes for its lack of action, but have recently vowed to pursue those avenues for 523 First Street and any other property causing problems in Albany's many neighborhoods. Sometimes it's a matter of being hands-off with these slumlords or absentee landlords that don't check up on tenants, don't clean things up, don't fix anything. You know, you live in a, a crap hole, you're going to act crappy because you're like, everything's going wrong in your life. And the only comfort you can get is some drugs and some loud music. And that's so I, that, that was on my block for a bit. Now it was just one house out of the dozen. And so it kind of was an issue, more so for my roommate than me. Uh, but it was an issue. And, uh, and it was because the middle house was like owned by some vac vacant land, you know, well, absentee landlord. We didn't know who they were or didn't, weren't easy to contact. And, and when things flipped for them, then those tenants left. 
you know, there was like three different families and they each took turns basically blasting music on the, the stew. So it wasn't just like a few people because that, that's fine, you know. It's like, oh yeah, a few hours a night. But when it's, they're taking different groups, you know, first the, the old folks would have a turn and then the teens would have a turn on the stoop. That's what it felt like. This is a very unfortunate way to learn this lesson, but I think we sort of took it for granted that there are these some institutional knowledge where, in fact, there really wasn't. This was the mayor speaking. We're going to move forward and pursue it. And this is because in the past, yeah, we had these mechanisms, but they're, you know, the people with the string, pulling the strings were all machine people who, it's like, well, that's not my job. <laughs> so problem properties, though, persist. How the city deals with nuisance properties came to a head following alleged police brutality used while handling a loud party complaint on March 16th of 2019. The melee initially was brought to the attention of city officials through a bystander recorded the incident on a cell and sent this clip to a city hall employee. Review of officer-worn body camera footage of the early morning confrontation led to Officer Luke Deere being charged with felony assault and misdemeanor official con misconduct. Two other officers, Matthew Sieber and Adam Icarancho, were suspect, suspended without pay. We found this, the activist community found this to be insufficient. You know, it's like, look, when these cops are acting this foolish, they should just go. And this was also like a, uh, it was a situation because you had their body cam footage and then that was contradicting the citizen shot footage or they turned their cameras off. So it's like, what's the point? We got millions of dollars for these cameras and setting up the tech for them and the servers back at City Hall, and they're not even going to use them or not use them properly. I think it was they had them on, but they would turn them off just for some bits. Deere waived his preliminary hearing on Monday, and the case now will go to a grand jury. I could check up on what the outcome of that was, but that's not pertinent to what the purpose here. Though the mayor said neither she nor the department heads were alerted to the issues at First Street, the call records show a long history of complaints at the home. Some area neighbors say the property was effectively running as an underground after-hours nightclub. Now, my first thought hearing that, reading it, is, yeah, there really is a lack of clubs, dance halls, and it didn't help that one of the mayor's early policies was the cabaret law, which limited live music in most of the city, trying to restrict it to just commercial areas. But we don't have those pure commercial areas in Albany. We are an older, denser, and thus more mixed-use city. Now, certain blocks are all residential and shouldn't have any businesses on them, especially ones that make noise. Nightclubs should be on their own block. And that's sort of how it is. But that block then becomes really high rent. And if it isn't easy to set up your club, then yeah, you're going to do it in someone's house or apartment. I mean, sometimes it's done in a garage, so like, you know, it's it's all kind of off the main residential blocks. I, I've kind of, I've walked by one or two of those in my time. So there's obviously better places. And it is antisocial behavior to do this in the first place and not think, yeah, I'm going to basically ruin the night of everyone else on the block, but I'm going to be making some money. This is my side business. You know, what else do I have? So, since May of 2013, police have received 71 calls about this property uh, on First Street, and those for loud music or parties stemming from the, as far back as August 2015. 
according to the call history for the property, included in the motion to dismiss charges against Sanchez. Many others were for fights or ignoring groups or vehicles. Now, you're meant to leave, like, leave us up to the free market or the legal contracts, right? You, tenant sign lease. Lease says if you do this kind of stuff, you're going to be evicted. But then the slumlord doesn't evict them or, I don't know, they're friends or something. That's unlikely, but some circumstances is preventing that. You know, how do you, quote unquote, evict somebody? <laughs> you know, it's, this, this is where the whole, like, if it's community owned, then there can be community standards. If it's market-based, it's a free-for-all. And it's up to the city to be the referee in a big, uh, big hockey fight of all against Hall, all, uh, unless unless all the the landlord owners or the you know all the you know and, and again it's, uh, the goal of these neighborhoods is like we just need people to be more homeowners. And thankfully, there is a law and committee in state government. It's being lobbied for now, or maybe it's just it's it's not yet in committee. It's but it's being lobbied the ability to uh, for tenants to buy out their lease which allows people to rent to own, put down a lump say, uh, lump sum or save up, uh, or rather their, their lease payment, you know, their to rent is paying for the house or the apartment. And uh, you can form co-ops that way. So there's all these possibilities that happen downstate that could happen upstate if we push this uh, reform. But instead... It's all against all and tenants against, you know, this problem of, oh, it's a problem is everyone's tenants. But then I'll meet people who like renting. They don't want the responsibility of being a homeowner because there's a lot of baggage with that. You're kind of on your own then. You have to almost act like a business person. So property owner Roger Plouffe, who plans to end the lease with tenants following the incident, said he'd owned the two-family building for about three years. The current tenants have lived there six months. So... Actually, that's weird. So the the building is going back years, four years. It's been getting all of these calls, but it's not just one group of tenants. It's like anyone who's in that house is delinquent. Let's go use that word, delinquent, or deviant. I'll put it that way, deviant. In the last six months, the police were called to the home 21 times, 15 of them in March. God, it's nearly like every other day. So, yeah. So that, that's where, like, the police side of things is like, of course they snapped and beat them up this time. This was every other day they're being called to come here and basically be their parents or tell them to stop being antisocial. It's, but, of course, like, that's not their job. They're not social workers. It should be social workers checking up on them every other day to be parents. Don't want to influentize. But to be guides, to be uh, helpers. Because when cops show up, it's they're not there to help you out. Uh, not usually. In Arbor Hill, Clinton Avenue, homeowner Colin McCoy said he's called police several times to one nearby building that often operates as an, another one after hours nightclub. On at least three occasions, I called the police to complain and watched a squad car pull up wherein the owner, I assume, came out and had a chat with one of the officers, shook hands one time with a little man hug, and drove away while the party continued inside. He said, I thought the behavior very odd. Is it normal for the police to shake hands with the operators of illegal after-hours joints? So what can be done? There are several ways either the city or individual people can take to address problem properties, but they're not commonly used. One option is a point system where, according to city code, the police chief can act based on how many points a property accrues 
within a six to 12 month period. But violations assigned points are mostly limited to criminal matters like gambling, prostitution, and weapon or drug possession. There's no evidence that Albany has kept track of properties that could warrant those points. Because even though we have a noise ordinance or something, that's not criminal, I guess. You don't get a ticket for a noise violation. Uh, for more general nuisances, like noise from loud parties, complaints signed by either 50% of nearby property owners or the common council member of the ward where the property can is can be submitted to the planning commissioner according to city code. This prompts a hearing by the Board of Zoning Appeals that could determine that the property is a nuisance and then shut down for up to two years. So interesting. There's more here. In 2015... A little-known option was used uh, in 20, 2004 to shut down an apartment building at 80 to 82 North Allen Street, also owned by Plute. In 2015, the city declared Washington Avenue Armory a public nuisance after the state liquor authority revoked the concert venue's liquor license. There was also a lot of other incidents. Uh, I think it was put in charge of a former Jennings associate. At least that's what I heard. The crackdown was the result of six men being stabbed at a hip-hop group, Migos concert, earlier that year. It's unclear which mechanism the city used when it came to the armory. Other buildings have been, now it's mostly family, family-friendly events there. <laughs> uh, sometimes wrestling. Other buildings have been shut down after police alerted codes to the problem properties and violations were found, City Buildings Director Rick LeJoy said. Last year, a shootout on Branford Street prompted police to call codes to 438 Central App, and inspectors found the garage had been turned into a social club. They had cushy couches, a pole. They also created bathrooms, which was a big thing, LaJoy said. They had tampered with the electric, so we issued stop work orders for them to get permits for electricity that they messed with and the plumbing. The tenants were part of a larger bust and they know and are no longer around, so the owner was left has left the building vacant. Residents can also take neighbors to court and try to prove the property is a nuisance, but attorneys suggest trying to resolve the issue without a loyal lawyer first. Well, for that, I would like, well, resolve it what one on one. Try to work out a deal. What if, what if everyone's some you know antisocial jerk? What if nobody has people skills in this instance, or or they think they're right? And there's you need a mediator. There needs to be services for mediation and peacemaking. Otherwise, it, it will end up being everyone being reactionary. You know, because you're left in the lurch. There's oh, the market will provide a solution. Of course not. It's left to the public realm to solve it. But then but then the city says, well, we liked them selling out, you know, the courts or their own thing. Mario Kamamari, partner at Thule and Rickety Law Firm in Albany, said complaints between neighbors are not uncommon for any locality. Yes, but it really shouldn't be solved with a Judge Judy type uh, scenario. For more general nuisances, you know, we want a restorative justice approach. In a residential area, it's pretty cut and dry. If you're doing something really obnoxious, neighbors can pursue civil action, said Camaretti, who has dealt with city civil litigation for numerous matters over the years. But, of course, if you're anti-legal system like me, uh, you don't really want to use that. You want to use some alternative. So that's why I'm talking about alternatives. Because everyone does not want to go through all the steps, rigmarole, waiting, and uncertainty of taking someone to court. It's also inherently antagonistic. You want it to get if you want to solve a social issue, I think people generally want to be nice about it. They don't want to fight and create conflict. And that's why usually it's the whole we'll do nothing, 
I'll move on if they're going to be obnoxious because you go up to the obnoxious people and tell them to stop, they're going to be more obnoxious or they're going to keep being obnoxious and say, who the hell are you to tell me what to do? I'm an adult. <laughs> who are you, my mother or the police? Even the police can't tell me what to do because they're going to be gone the second you know I turn it down. So it seems like you can't win, and then you have to bring the civil what bring people to court. What kind of what do you assume for? They have no money, they have no property, no assets, just the bodies. You got to send them to debtors' prison. What is it, Dickens? That's where my mind goes. And no, people are not that cruel and sensitive to the injustices the people face. So we don't call the cops on them all the time, or we don't take people to court immediately you know we want an alternative i'd like to provide that in the community sector and the community economy with peace circles and such and sure there's usually like okay how, if they're not going to agree to turn their music down why would they agree to a, a conflict resolution process because we know that at least if we force quote unquote or require someone in a community to be a part of it, at least that will have a positive outcome, unlike locking people up in jail or taking away what little they have, uh, their children, let's say, breaking up a family, what have you, doing the cruel stuff. So, uh, but Albany lawyer Rob McGee, who regularly deals with code and ordinance violations, said pursuing nuisance properties can be challenging because of laws protecting people's rights or property rights, really, and the potential to unintentionally punish a victim in the process. And that's also kind of the trepidation of taking some of the court because it could backfire on you. It could end up hurting you in the end. Or when you, you know, if you go to war, always dig two, what is it, two, two burial plots. One for your enemy, one for you. So back to the civil litigation, the... So, Caminetti, who has dealt with civil litigation for numerous matters over the years, he, sa he says, the city can take action if it's a zoning violation, and that action is that they shut it down. I can't operate a barbershop in an area where I can't do it. Except people need cheap barbers around here. You know, if, if you do things legitimately, it's going to cost you more. You know, you, you have to interact with the institutions that rule our society. And they want to fleece you blind, or they need to extract value, even if they want, even if they want to be nice about it. I still need, I still have bills to pay. I have mortgages to pay off. I have banks, uh, loans, so on, so on. So, in the mark, uh, in the wake of March 16th, First Street clash, city officials say they're working towards together to properly communicate to people what they can do. Quote, we need to look at the other tools that are available beyond just criminal enforcement, and we need to partner with one another, says the mayor. That partnership, in my mind, is not someone sitting here and hiring another employee who's scouring through data and looking for patterns. We should be able to talk to each other. Well, then you need to hire a facilitator. Someone has to do this social work, you know, hire some more social workers. Now, in the latest uh, city budget, she has been doing that. Though I was disappointed to learn, well, I guess it's a baby step, but the social workers being hired or being put in the police stations. So when people have a mental episode, when they're being arrested, then they can be talked down. Because <laughs> that's where people are having probably having the most mental episodes, but they can have them anywhere because this, this world's maddening. 
I mean, even the governor, you know, it's like she devoted a significant amount of time to her state of state to mental health reform. Because, yeah, it does really, really suck. But what's causing people to go insane, right? <laughs> Anxiety, climate crisis. She didn't really mention a lot about that, actually. Just planting more trees. <laughs> no, a lot, a lot of talk about more police state, actually. Well, police are often often reach out to code enforcement other departments. Police Chief Hawkins said the first street incident was shown there's an opportunity to enhance those relationships. Well, between who and who? Between homeowners and landlords, between homeowners in the city, tenants and police, like who? Like, do, I, do we all need to have a big forum together? That wasn't done. That's something the city doesn't do. We don't do really big meetings where we actually invite all the stakeholders. And when they say stakeholders, it, I think sometimes it's code for shareholders. Because that's like, oh, thinking like a business. We need to invite all the stakeholders. Do tenants not have a stake? I don't see them invited to you know certain meetings. Or workers. They're during the day. So I'm at the end here. You know, there's room for some improvement. And they do improve how codes are done I and mean, how effective the codes department is. Officers will be trained to ensure that they know all the tools available and information will be reiterated to common council members. So more than like, okay, if you're going to a place that's like multiple times a month, then maybe call codes in. All right. So you don't have to keep going back because otherwise residents are going to keep calling you in. And that's the kind of thing that the police seem to be spending a lot of their time on. All of these little domestic disturbance and or and obnoxious behavior stuff. Uh, <laughs> no particularly defined purpose. So, chucking through this hour, as I always do, I'm going to go through an actual little policy paper here. It's very short, though. It's simply the short and sweet case for a commuter tax in Albany. The commuter tax down in New York City is pretty contentious. Obviously, it's controversial for all the drivers and such. Because commuter tax is particularly, you know, a driving tax or, you know, I mean, commuter, commuting by car. How else are people commuting? Bus? But it's particularly, this was written by uh, Andrew Tataway, actually. I've friended him on Facebook. I haven't encountered him in a while, though. Not sure if he's still in the area or not. But this is his blog, I guess, or a blog that he wrote for, Last Days of the Republic. I think it was his. I saved this from uh, a share of his, a post of his on Facebook. But it was a particular, it's a blog, it's a standard Blogspot blog. And when did he write this? At some point. Probably also 2019. A lot of the stuff I saved uh, pre-pandemic, I guess. So this past week, I attended the summer staff meeting for the organization that I work for. During a conversation with one of my colleagues, the concept of levying commuter tax came up as one way of raising it revenue for Albany. The city where I live, oh yeah, and he's writing for a general audience, Albany, New York, the city where I live and work. As I found the idea intriguing, I decided to do some more research, and on it, upon return, returning home, the following is what I discovered. And I like this, he did the research, and now I can quote it. The city of Albany is the state capital of New York and hosts a number of state government buildings and offices. And he's, he kind of goes through, like, why is Albany always kind of in a $12 million budget hole? Because a good amount of city... Uh, and in fact, here, here he has the numbers. The properties like the state state properties of the office campus, the plaza, the colleges, the hospitals, the medical research facilities, 
these properties, uh, there also happen to be our economic drivers of two, so that's sort of ironic. But these properties are exempt from paying city property taxes. Overall, 63% of the property value of Albany is non-taxable. A very high percentage. Now, my first thought is, well, then we should be taxing incomes and not property. Don't worry about taxing land. That's not where the value comes. The value comes in the services and goods that are moving around. That's what we should be taxing, right? Or taxing the money that people make. Since people are making money from non-material things like services, abstract financial instruments, property and real estate, that's what should be taxed. But we're not allowed to, or at least we need to ask for special permission to have a special sales tax or something like that. But so instead, or, you know, commuter tax. And I have, I don't know if I read it about, um, not on this program, but in my three left show, I covered land taxes and how if Albany instituted a land tax, it would actually raise a lot more, a bit more money. And it's a much more equitable way of taxing because you're just taxing the land and the value of the land and not the whole property, right? That way you can improve your house or build on a plot of land or a vacant lot and you're not increasing your tax load right the land of the, the value of the land is the same or that value of the land is dependent on the public infrastructure behind it that's what makes it valuable so anyway although some of these institutions provide the city with payments in lieu of taxes also known as pilots or other sources of revenue, particularly the state government, there is still a disproportionate burden of property taxes levied on city homeowners and business owners. In the fiscal yield 2017 budget, these property taxes composed $58 million out of the overall $177 million in revenue projected to be collected by the city, which is about a third of that. Another factor that exasperates the city of Albany's revenue problems is that the majority of the people who work at these and other institutions do not live in the city. Out of a total workforce of 110,000 people of inside the city of Albany, 85,000 of those don't live within the city limits. That's a 76%. Although these workers use city services on a regular basis, especially the roads, but the only tax revenue that they contribute to the city are sales taxes, which are then collected by the county and then allocated to the city. But no property taxes can then be collected from these individuals and the lack of a city income tax deprives the city of a potentially vital source of revenue. Now, I would just prefer to have the income tax. If you're in your income in Albany, then you're contributing to the welfare of Albany. Um, because the welfare of Albany is contributing to your income. Um, you're only able to have that income because we're a city. Now, of course, another um, solution, which is much more extreme, I guess, is to make the city bigger. Um, have a metropolitan area that's you know like the, like New York City uh, include uh, Colony, Latham, Waterville, Manans, Latham. I'm not saying they lose their local governments, but you have a meta government, uh, you know, sub between the county and the city levels. You have a a larger kind of metro government that then includes these areas and thus has a shared tax base. And thus, our school districts can be more equitably funded, and that goes for everything else. Because it's interesting that in the suburbs where you know taxes are you know lower, but people who live there say like I pay these taxes, and I it feels like I don't get anything. Well, you are. It's just that suburbs require so much more infrastructure. 
that suburbs are in fact really, really inefficient, that it takes more revenue to to fund it all, even though you're not you're not getting the trash service forever. But it is possible to do that stuff in a dense you know in the city. That's the advantage of urbanism. So anyway. Digression on income tax, but uh, derives the city a potentially vital source of revenue. Instead, many of these commuting workers live in lower tax neighborhood, neighboring towns like Bethlehem or Colony, which provide far fewer services to the residents or in surrounding counties. One possible solution is a commuter tax. In brief, a commuter tax is, a ta- is one, generally on either income or wages, levied upon persons who work but do not live in a particular jurisdiction. So it is kind of a runaround. Commuter taxes have been used by other cities to raise revenue, including New York City, which had a commuter tax until 99 when it was repealed due to politics at the state level, and it's being brought back. Such a commuter tax would enable the city of Albany to capture as revenue some of the income that is generated within its city limits. If Albany implemented a 0.45% commuter tax on income for non-resident workers, which was the rate that was done in New York City, it would have the potential of generating $20 million itself. This figure is based on an estimated non-resident workforce of 85000 roughly, with an average annual salary of fifty-five grand for workers in the city, which would mean annual revenue of $21 million. This is no small sum for a city with a budget of $177 million. It could help fund expansion of current programs and addition of new ones while also allowing for some property tax relief for existing homeowners and business owners. Could even make it affordable or a good deal for those suburbanites to move and renovate in the, in the city of Albany. I mean, hell, if I'm going to be, paid, if I'm going to be paying this tax for, as a price of admission, or it could mean that um, I think uh, business owners or whatever, some jobs would just move out to the suburbs, as some small businesses do. But the large employers, like the cities and the research institutions in the state, they're not moving. So meanwhile, the cost to commuters would be minimal. At an average cost of about $150, it would be less than a dollar per workday. This policy could be made even more progressive by having a graduated scale to take into account the greater ability to pay of commuters with higher incomes or by exempting low-income commuters and those who commute using public transportation. Attempting to implement such a policy would present challenges, of course. Commuters would surely protest what they might view as an arbitrary tax and would appeal to their state legislators to prevent such a tax from being levied, because we'd have to get it. We don't have home rule. A past city report noted that a commuter represents a source of missing and potentially unobtainable revenue for the city lamenting that, quote, creation of such a tax for Albany would require city and state legislation that is not currently considered feasible. It would likely take a determined effort by both city residents and elected leaders to have any hope of putting such a policy into place. I, too, would like to be one of those determined people and organize others. Of course, and, you know, there's a lot of conservatives might be for, you know, lower pro- your property taxes. Of course, uh, the best case scenario would simply be to secure an increase dedicated stream of income from the state, which is what the mayor has taken to do, uh, or earn the right to tax the currently exempt properties within city limits. Given the enormous political hurdles for either of those ideas to come to pass, a commuter tax may present the solution most likely to actually happen. So I like that piece. And in my last five minutes, I'm going to retire early so I can play the rest of that song I opened with. 
So that is this week's program of What's Left in Albany. So just to conclude or to summarize, I covered a capstone of Trayvon Jackson. I covered most of the episode. I talked, I jabbered about the state of the state, which is very much in the moment, but generally bigger societal issues. So the state of the state doesn't really change. Uh, it's capitalist. Yeah, it's, it's a capitalist state. So um, what else can you say? What else do you need to say is what I mean. I covered community tax for Albany in that in the case for that. And about nuisance properties, market-based solutions, or the lack thereof, or rather what the city is able to do when there's such strong property rights and lack of community ownership. And it's interesting that sometimes community ownership is framed as being just more homeowners. I see it as, the no, actually community, like commons. You know, you can't have community standards without community entity governing or owning things. If you don't own it, it's not really yours. If it's if it's owners that could be anywhere, or maybe just down the block, even so, if they're still property profiting, then they there's an incentive against being sociable about it. So that's this week's program. Please contact me to leave feedback, suggest topics, or join me on the program. Though that doesn't really quite matter anymore. Maybe one or two people. Really disappointing. I don't want to be like those other people, though, that stand up on stage and just go like, I'm disappointed in y'all. We got to have more responsibility around here. Like, that's unfair. We're all doing our best. We all have serious problems. And we need to work on them together and not just pretend it's everyone else or uh, everyone else has their thing. I can understand why my show hasn't taken off and why I don't have a lot of fan base or I had one Patreon supporter but then he had some hard times. I didn't get more. But anyway, it's going to stay online. The content from the Three Left Show and this program, the What's Left in Albany. So leave reviews for that, so they can in fact be found. Be found if someone searches for Left or Albany or Left politics, socialism, etc. And share it if you can, if you ever do find this. Uh, support, you know, support me on Patreon, Libre Pay. Those pages will be up. Uh, just search for uh, The Three Left Show. You can contact me on Facebook, Macedon, um, as well as Instagram as well, but I, I just don't check that. But The Three Left Show is my prior program where I discuss leftist theory, strategies, practice for better politics and system change. Last, uh, I want to wish all well and encourage all listening to devote some time every week to a collective or community project as we discover together what is actually left in Albany. And next time... If not next time, the next next time, I will go about what kind of community projects I want to work on and what I would like to invite all of you to join me in doing to deal with what is left in Albany. I was just a little thing I used to love parades With banners, bands, red balloons And maybe lemonade When I came home one May Day My neighbor's father said Them marchers is all commies Tell me, kid, are you a red? Well, I didn't know just what he meant My hair back then was brown Our house was plain red brick Like most others in the town so I went and asked my mama why our neighbor called me red. My mommy took me on her knee and this is what she said. 
Well, you ain't done nothing if you ain't been called a red if you march or agitated So you might as well ignore it or love the word instead Cause you ain't been doing nothing if you ain't been called a red When I was grown up, had my troubles, I suppose, when someone took exception to my face or to my clothes, or tried to cheat me on a job or hit me on the head. When I organized a fight, that why the stinkers called me red. But you ain't done nothing if you ain't been called a red. If you marched or agitated, then you're bound to hear it said. So you might as well ignore it or love the words instead. Cause you ain't been doing nothing if you ain't been called a red. When I was living on my own apartment that I had, had a lousy rotten landlord, let me tell you, he was bad. But when he tried to throw me out, I rubbed my hands and said, You haven't seen a struggle if you haven't fought a red. And you ain't done nothing if you ain't been called a red. If you march or agitated, then you're bound to hear it said. So you might as well ignore it or love the words instead. Cause you ain't been doing nothing if you ain't been called a red. Well, I kept on agitating. Cause what else can you do? You're gonna let the sons of bitches walk all over you. My friend said, you'll get fired hanging with that commie mob. I should be so lucky, buddy. I ain't got a job. And you ain't done nothing if you call the red. If you march or agitate and then you're bound to hear it said. So you might as well ignore it or love the words instead. Cause you ain't been doing nothing if you Agitating now for 50 years and more For jobs and for equality And always against war I'll keep on agitating As far as I can see And if that's what being red is Well, it's good enough for me Cause you ain't done nothing If you ain't been called a red If you march or I mourned the Tiananmen martyrs whose free speech was so brutally quelled and I cheered when Mandela walked freely after so many years in a cell but Chelsea Manning had to face justice those secrets were not hers to tell Just about any petition And I'll gladly accept your brochure I love Oprah and Magic and Foreman I wish blacks were all entrepreneurs Capitalism may need saving Revolution just isn't the cure So love me, love me, love me I'm a liberal I cheered when Obama was chosen 
my faith in the system restored. And I'll never forgive Ralph Nader for the race he stole from Al Gore. And I love hardworking Latinos as long as they don't move next door. Ah, but I've grown older and wiser 